Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. From the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, public attention on COVID-19 cases has focused on two ends of the spectrum. Those who are severely affected and die from the virus, and those who have mild or even asymptomatic illness and quickly recover. But among the more than 6.5 million U.S. COVID-19 infections since March, there have been a growing number of reports of people experiencing lingering symptoms for several months and getting few answers from the medical community. On this September 17 episode of the Osterholm Update, we're going to explore the phenomenon of these COVID-19 long haulers and look at what we know about the lingering symptoms associated with the coronavirus. We'll also discuss the current state of the pandemic, the controversy over the president's response, and answer listener emails about reinfections and flu vaccination. But first, we'll start with Dr. Osterholm's dedication. Thanks, Chris. As we uh, have said on many other of the other podcasts, I want to thank the audience for being with us today. Uh, in terms of the dedication today and following up on your introduction, uh, we want to dedicate this to the long haulers. We're going to be talking about them today and the challenge that they face with their post-COVID-19 acute infection situation. Um, it is a challenge, and uh, we will we will uh, do the best we can to give you the most current information. I also want to make a note uh, in light of last week's uh, podcast on mental health uh, that some additional information came out this past week uh, addressing the issue of loneliness among older adults before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. It came from the uh, National Poll on Healthy Aging by the University of Michigan, a very, very well done piece of work. And what they did is they um, asked a national sample of U.S. adults aged 50 to 80 about a lack of companionship and isolation or loneliness, social interactions and health behaviors in June 2020. Um, this was a follow-up to a similar survey they did, conducted in October of 2018. And uh, it was striking the results they found, again, but similar to what we saw last week. Um, in October of 2018, 34% of this population felt a lack of companionship, quite significant. But on, from in the June 2020 survey, it was at 41%. 27% in October 2018 felt isolated from others. 56% of this population felt isolated from others. And in October 2018, 28% reported infrequent social contacts. Now it was up to 46%. And I think this uh, is just another piece of evidence that we have to do much more as it relates to dealing with the mental health aspects of this pandemic. And um, it, it's a real commentary on aging and this population of individuals 50 to 80 years of age. We need to do much more to assure that they don't have to experience that lack of companionship, that isolation, or that infrequent social contact. And we'll talk more about that later. Mike, looking at the situation here in the U.S., the Midwest appears to be in the midst of a surge of COVID-19 cases, especially Iowa and the Dakotas. What's driving the surge? And is this going to look like what we saw first in the Northeast this spring and then in the South and the West over the summer? 
Well, we've been on a journey uh, with cases in the United States, as, as this group uh, listening to this podcast knows. Uh, that early house on fire uh, situation in New York, primarily uh, Chicago, uh, Detroit, uh, New Orleans, Seattle, uh, gave way to basically uh, a sense of from going from 32,000 ca- new cases a day in, in April to that 22,000 cases per day uh, just before Memorial Day. We saw what happened after that when we, in a sense, opened up. Uh, physical contact became a much more of a normative behavior. And uh, we watched the number of cases go up to 67,000 cases per day in that July-August time period. And then, of course, uh, we saw it come down after those houses on fire in Florida, Georgia, Texas, and California in particular, uh, really uh, put forward a great deal that the young adults and older adolescents in society today are not taking this uh, pandemic with the seriousness that uh, they should. And I'll comment on that more later as we get into the long hauler discussion, which is severely impacting uh, those young adults. And um, it's a situation where once we see this explosion of cases in college-age students, uh, the spillover is very likely into uh, older populations, people with underlying health conditions that predispose them to severe disease. And then on top of that, uh, the rest of the country seems to also be experiencing chronic fatigue syndrome level two, uh, as we're seeing in many instances, outbreaks uh, associated with a variety of different uh, social activities, particularly bars and restaurants. Uh, a story in today's Washington Post showed the very rapid rise in cases within three weeks in areas that opened up their bars and restaurants again. And so I think you put this all together, then lay over it the uh, ever-increasing indoor air exposure we're going to have as we get into the fall and winter months in in particularly large parts of North America. And I just think the case numbers are going to increase and continue to increase. Remember, we're only at about 8 to 10% of the U.S. population having been infected with this virus, uh, it, suggesting that they would be immune with so many of us not yet uh, experiencing any sense of immunity. So even with vaccine potentially coming down the pike, uh, we've got a number of months yet to go where uh, things could really get out of hand again. And I, I have a real fear that that's what's going to happen. Internationally, we've spoken on recent episodes about the uptick in cases in Europe, and the WHO said this week that deaths will likely rise in October and November in Europe. Uh, Is Europe about to become a house on fire again? Well, Europe actually is, in part, a house on fire right now. If you look at Spain, France, and the UK, they're at uh, case numbers now that are higher than they were back when they were on fire in April. Um, Czech Republic, which has been a model in terms of responding to the uh, pandemic, uh, showing very few cases for a number of months, are now seeing uh, a major increase in cases. And I think that uh, what is happening, as as I've shared before, is is that the European countries and to some degree the Asian countries unfortunately learned a, a sad lesson from the United States. We should have learned from them Back in April, May, and June, you can drive this virus down. Uh, You can keep it contained if, in fact, once you get it to a low level, you then have that ability to respond quickly to slight increases in cases. Um, And 
we basically didn't ever get there. So we never had a chance to do that with one exception. And that is the state of New York, which again, I know some people on this podcast wonder why I keep coming back to that. Uh, again, I acknowledge they had some serious challenges in the early days of, of uh, the pandemic uh, with, with uh, the number of deaths and uh, the nursing home related events. But since that time, they've basically demonstrated that once you get the numbers of cases down, which they did, and then they have this extensive follow-up as case numbers begin to increase the percentage of positives, they have now gone almost 12 weeks in a flatline number of cases. The last 30 days, they've been below 1% of tests positive. Uh, so I, I'll come back to the European situation because what they did is they got it down, kept it down for a while, and then kind of started to relax uh, their distancing without controlling it, meaning they basically started to take their foot off their brake big time, whereas a place like New York took it off a bit at a time and looked to see what the response would be in terms of number of cases. So now we're seeing these big increases in cases there. We also have substantial activity right now in the Middle East. Israel, as you know, uh, starting on Friday of this week, will impose a three-week uh, lockdown uh, we're seeing a big increase in cases in the West Bank, Gaza, and we continue to see case numbers that are just um, uh, just sad uh, in much of South and Central America, Argentina, Colombia, Panama, Brazil. Uh, so I think that that the world in itself right now uh, is is just uh, coming to grips with, I guess, this ongoing pandemic fatigue that's occurring where people just can't seem to to avoid the kind of physical contact that's resulting in transmission. So um, they too, as uh, the United States will go over the course of the next few months, I think we're going to see a big increase in cases around the world. Uh, and uh, I think the WHO's projections on deaths are right on the mark. You were on Meet the Press last Sunday, and you were asked a question about President Trump's intentional downplaying of the severity of the coronavirus in February and March, as has been reported in the new Bob Woodward book. So as you know, you only get a limited amount of time in TV interviews. So I'm wondering if you can expand on, on how you view the president's response to the coronavirus and the questions you have about how this administration will respond going forward. Over the course of uh, these podcasts and, of course, in our activities at SIDRAP, we've made every effort to be nonpartisan, uh, while at the same time having a very proactive public health agenda. Uh, you know, our job is to call balls and strikes. It's not to uh, declare allegiance for or any against any one area or side or individual. Just call the balls and strikes. And what I commented on last uh, Sunday in Meet the Press, which I think some found somewhat um, difficult because they wanted a very clear-cut answer was the fact that if you go back and look at that February, March time period for which has been the focus of much of the Woodwork book, I just tried to, again, declare a ball and a strike situation where, as uh, some of you know, on January 20th, I put an email out to a number of uh, uh, people who work with us that, in fact, this was going to cause a pandemic. This COVID-19 was going to be uh, responsible for a, a pandemic and we needed to get ready. It was going to be tough. Um, between January 20th and February 24th, when I published an op-ed uh, with Mark Olshaker in the New York Times saying, let's get on with it. This is a pandemic and we need to deal with it, even though no country and the WHO had not yet declared it. Throughout that entire time, 
I received lots of negative criticism from colleagues, from Democrats, and from Republicans who said, you're just scaring people needlessly. Don't do that. You know, this, why do you always have to do this? Well, bad news, Mike. And, you know, of course, my effort was really to try to ignite preparedness. Um, and so, you know, I'm here sitting here today saying, you know, let's let's take a free pass on the February, March time period, because if you want to look at it, everybody uh, who had information and could have had the same information we had at SIDRAP, and we were surely sharing that information, it wasn't like we kept it close hold, should have understood this was going to be a pandemic. So um, at this point, I don't think it helps us at all to advance our activities today by going back and revisiting February and March. It'll be dueling uh, uh, clips on the internet as to who said what, when, and where by all these different parties. But I do care, absolutely care about where are we at today? What have we done since March? We still don't have a national plan. We have 50 different state plans, many of which are uh, not necessarily scientifically sound. Um, we have uh, a great deal of confusion about all kinds of aspects of, of public health interventions. And to me, that's where we ought to be focusing right now. Let's keep our eye on the ball, folks. Let's keep remembering that we've got a long ways to go yet. Uh, you know, even a vaccine becomes available at the end of the year, it's going to take months and months before we can vaccinate the U.S. population. And with a vaccine, by the way, we don't know how well it's going to work. And so I just want to stay focused on demanding our leadership provide us the kinds of plans, the kinds of actions right now uh, that we need, not only here in the United States, but around the world. This is not an indication that I, as a public health person, are not willing to take on these tough issues, but I also am one that basically doesn't believe it helps to go out and hollow the moon and hope that that's going to change the course of the public health challenge we have with COVID-19. So, uh, yes, I do hold our leadership accountable now, and I've held them accountable for months. I just don't want to get back into that other that, that time period from, from February and March and think anything productive is going to come from it. The other thing I just want to comment on, because this has come out time and time again, uh, relative to the discussion about who knew what, when, and where, is I keep hearing people saying, you know, we didn't want to say anything because we don't want to panic people. And as we've discussed on this very podcast about risk communication and how to uh, communicate with the public in, in crisis, the bottom line is the public never panics when you tell them the truth. They never do. Just tell them the truth. Tell them what you know. Tell them how you know it. Tell them what you don't know and what you're going to do to find out, and they will follow you. That's what great leaders in the history of our world have done. They have not misled the public uh, to make a situation worse or better than it really was. And so that's the other message I think that comes through right now. Um, you know, I learned as a kid back in that rural Iowa hometown, uh, when in doubt, just tell the truth. And you don't even have to remember what you told somebody else before and might get it wrong. Just tell the truth. And I think that's what we have to focus on here. Uh, action now and tell the truth. On another political point, there was a report late last week in Politico about communications aides in the Department of Health and Human Services demanding the ability to review and even edit COVID-19 studies in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report to align more closely with the president's statements on the coronavirus. 
Mike, can you explain to our listeners why the MMWR, as it's known, is such an important public health document and, and why political meddling with it is a concern to so many people? The MMWR, or the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from CDC, is almost like a, a jobs report that comes out from the Labor Department, which are considered to be beyond reproach in terms of their accuracy, uh, no influence except these are the numbers. And we have counted on the MMWR for many decades to be a vehicle upon which public health could take as the best science we have, and it's what we know now, without any kind of alteration by policymakers, by uh, any kind of other influence other than just the science. And, you know, as I have said over and over again, and I'm sure you're probably getting bored hearing this on this podcast, but science must rule the day. Science is a self-correcting discipline that you're right, if we don't always get it right because the data we have don't sufficiently allow us to understand a situation there with additional data, we do understand it in a more sophisticated and, and hopefully correct manner. But science is, in fact, the gasoline that should run the critical policy motor that we have in this world for making decisions about what to do about public health. Uh, it should be without emotion. It surely is something that does uh, ultimately develop into a public policy discussion, but that public policy discussion should be on data that are irrefutable, that are basically, they don't change. You, you can't have alternative facts here. And again, I just come back to a point I made a few minutes ago, it should all be about balls and strikes. You know, when I think about the power of science and I look at society today, I just have to take a step back and remember, you know, it was science that got humans to the moon. It was science that built medieval cathedrals that were incredible. And how those ceilings were able to be assembled and stand up hundreds of feet above the ground with that heavy rock. Science is what eradicated smallpox, one of the worst scourges of all humankind. Science has even dramatically reduced the risk of polio and childhood vaccine preventable diseases. That's science. If we don't have this type of science, where it is free of any kind of policy editorializing, whether it be partisan, uh, related to politics, whether it be uh, related to any other uh, social political aspect of our society, we're in deep trouble. So I, I just come back to say that um, I, we have to defend the integrity of science. It's the only way that you and the public can believe us. You know, I've said to you on multiple occasions, you know, be skeptical of everything, including me. And I come back to that and say, continue to be skeptical of people, but don't be skeptical of good science. And that's why if we don't have good science, you have no place to go to get anything that's worth of value in terms of how we should move forward in our lives. So now to the issue of COVID-19 long haulers. We don't yet have large-scale estimates on how many people are suffering lingering and, in some cases, debilitating symptoms from COVID-19. But it's becoming clear that these are not isolated cases. Mike, as you've looked into this issue, what have you learned about this lingering symptoms associated with the coronavirus? First of all, uh, I think that this is an area that, of all aspects of COVID-19-related disease, um, 
we have really been the slowest to understand what the implications are. When we had uh, the house on fire in places like Lombardy in Italy, in New York, and in places like that in March and April, there was so much incredible work that got done in the intensive care units by intensivists who are at the simultaneously caring for patients, but learning about what we could do better for outcomes. And one of the reasons why we see today such a major improvement in the mortality rates from those earliest days without the presence of a blockbuster drug is because we learned how to handle these patients from a clinical standpoint, how to do mechanical ventilation, when, you know, what drugs we do have, how to best use them. So from that perspective, that has been a such a major success in COVID-19. But understanding the long-term consequences of this disease has really been very, very slow to understand the implications of that long-term uh, situation. And it's only now that we're coming to, to appreciate that. When we hear the name long haulers, you know, I, for one, was wanting to know where did it come from? Because I, you know, I think it surely is, is a good description of what's happening. The best we can find is that in the June 4th issue of The Atlantic, a story was written about it. And at that point, some of the people who were impacted uh, on, and reported on Facebook and so forth, refer to themselves as long-termers or long-haulers. And eventually the long-hauler term became accepted. Um, these individuals have an illness that is it, it reminiscent of it. I want to say it's the same because it's not of what we used to call chronic fatigue syndrome. Today we have a new name for that, uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis. We have had experience in the past with the chronic consequences of infectious diseases. For example, in the 1950s, after an outbreak in a London hospital of some infectious agent never determined, there was this outbreak of myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, a mouthful, basically EM. And it was a condition that uh, with further study, and in fact, in the 1980s, mid-1980s, a similar outbreak occurred in the, in the Lake Tahoe region, and the CDC called it chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, that is today the M-E-C-F-S combination that we talk about with this kind of, of condition, which I'll describe more in a moment. But today we estimate that there may be up to 2.5 million Americans who have M-E-C-F-S. And uh, this whole long haulers experience does make us think, wow, there are some real similarities here. Um, it's been estimated that up to about 10% of mild coronavirus cases who are not admitted to hospitals have reported symptoms lasting more than four weeks. A number of hospitalized cases reported continuing symptoms of, of eight or more weeks following discharge. And that number is going to continue to change as we have more time to follow these individuals while there surely are recoveries. There are a, a number who are continuing on. Um, when you look at the uh, kind of persistent health problems we're talking about, they include respiratory symptoms and conditions such as a chronic cough, shortness of breath, lung inflammation, fibrosis, and pulmonary vascular disease, uh, clearly cardiovascular symptoms and disease such as chest tightness, acute myocarditis, and heart failure. Uh, there's been protracted loss or changes of smell and taste, 
In terms of mental health problems, we see depression, anxiety, and cognitive difficulties, inflammatory disease such as myalgias, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which we've seen in kids, Guillain-Barre syndrome. We also see gastrointestinal disturbances with diarrhea, continuing headaches, fatigue, weakness, and sleeplessness, liver and kidney dysfunction, clotting disorders and thrombosis, lymphadenopathy, and even skin rashes. And uh, these are not one common constellation that everyone has. Some have more than others. And the key thing, though, is is that they basically are uh, experiencing these days to weeks after infection. Now, when you think about the fact that we have about 6.5 million uh, reported cases of infection in this country, and yet we know that um, we have, you know, many, many more really infected than that, probably, you know, one out of seven to one out of 10 patients ever are documented. Therefore, you can understand that there, if we look at that, that's 30 to 70 million Americans who have been infected to date. And if that 10% number holds, which I think it may or may not once we look at the denominator more carefully, but it's still a lot of people, this is a real challenge in terms of the number of people who are experiencing this kind of a problem. Um, in terms of why this might be occurring, it's not clear yet. There are three possible avenues that we've explored uh, with regard to what might be causing this. The first one is the virus is gone, but the immune system is stuck in a lingering overreactive state. One is that maybe we could harbor the virus in a, res- a reservoir organ that we don't know about. There's no evidence to support that at this time. And finally, that fragments of viral material might trigger an immune overreaction, meaning as we're clearing that viral debris, it's still there. It's going to be uh, a very important we try to understand what the etiology is for this. And just as we've seen with EM, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, it's going to be a challenge. We have to realize that this is going to be a challenge. If you look at uh, what we've seen so far in terms of cases with lung haulers disease, let me make it really clear one of the major challenges around the mental health side of this is so many of these people were not tested in the early days of the pandemic. We didn't have testing available. And so they've tried to go in and seek a medical care for this chronic condition, and they've, in many cases, been written off, and, and they shouldn't have been. Now, you know, if they test today for the virus, obviously they're not going to find it. At the same time, this is where we should be testing people with antibody to find out if, in fact, these people might have had evidence there. And many people who have had uh, uh, infection who have become long haulers have now been found to be positive via antibody testing. So that's an important thing. If you're listening to this, you think you're a long hauler, you didn't have a, a, a PCR test done when you first became ill, uh, do not give up. Go back in, demand to have an antibody test uh, and to see if that's the case of what's gone on. Now, if we look at um, the situation in terms of what we might be talking about here, uh, the survey data is really limited in that it's only been a limited period of time that we've had since the time that you got infected till now. 
Um, one study that was uh, reported uh, this past week out of England found that about 10% of mild COVID cases who weren't admitted to the hospital reported symptoms lasting more than four weeks. Uh, a number of the hospitalized patients reported symptoms for more than eight weeks following discharge. And they had a list of 12 items. Uh, and as I just pointed out, there are many of the same that I just uh, summarized for you. Um, also, if you uh, look at a survey that was done by the CDC reported in the July 31st Morbidity Mortality Report, that critical science-based report, uh, this was a survey done between March and June of 2020 when the case numbers were fewer. Uh, and again, there wasn't as much time for them to, to have developed long-term long haulers-like symptoms. There they found in a telephone survey of 292 non-hospitalized symptomatic adults who did have a positive test result, that 35% of those respondents reported ongoing symptoms up to three weeks after testing. So you can see that this has continued. Um, our experience with this, I guess, shouldn't be a total surprise. Um, if you look at SARS-CoV-1, the cause of SARS back in 2003, there have been now a 15-year study looking at the issue of, of heart-related conditions that have occurred in people who uh, were SARS cases back in 2003, and 4.6% of these still had visible lesions on their lungs from their original infection, meaning damage that occurred. And 38% had reduced diffusion capacity. So this was a long-term type of problem that they had. Um, when they, a study that uh, was just published uh, this week from Aust Austria found that at six weeks, 88% of long haulers had evidence of lung disease based on radiographs or x-rays. At 12 weeks, 56% still did. So it's improving. Um, I think if there's anything I can share with this group that's really important is if you have these symptoms, again, you do need to be seen. And, and there are a growing number of locations around the country, around the world, that are now specializing in seeing long haulers. Get on the internet, identify those places that have uh, expertise in this, who are, are, are very willing to, to dive into what you're experiencing and provide, I think, the very best opportunity for you to, to get the better care if this is, a deal, again, dealing with ongoing uh, immunologic reaction, whatever. Um, people ask often, well, is this really different than we've seen with other infectious agents? Yes, we have seen post-viral syndromes with other viruses such as influenza, SARS-MERS, West Nile, mononucleosis, but not at the level we're seeing here. This is unprecedented. This is really remarkable. And I think that that's the kind of... Uh, uh, situation where it hopefully will not continue, that we'll see gradual improvement that will occur over time. But for right now, at least, it is real. And where this all takes me to is the fact that um, today, a number of these long haulers are young, healthy individuals who are never hospitalized. The same people who are not afraid of getting infected now because they don't see any of their friends necessarily in the hospital. They don't see them in an intensive care unit. And if I had one message, why not to get infected? If I can't get it across to you that, number one, you do run the risk of being seriously ill, grant you it's low, and dying, you may transmit this virus to others that you love and care about who are susceptible to serious disease. At least think about for yourself 
the issue of this long hauler's condition. I know far too many people myself who are professionals uh, in the medical care area who literally are at home on oxygen right now eight to 10 weeks after having been a, a patient with mild illness, not even hospitalized. And so uh, as we continue to study this, and we will keep you updated on this, we will keep you posted on what we're finding. Uh, uh, this is a really important area for those who have these symptoms please know that there are people who believe you. There are people who understand what you're going through. And there are people here who want to help you. Don't be one of those individuals who goes to a care provider who says, well, there's nothing I can do. I, I, you're not positive by virus. Uh, know that you can still be tested for antibodies. This is one of those few times where I tell you this is important. And uh, get into one of these studies. Get into one of these centers that are working on this. Uh, and, uh, and know that from a physiologic standpoint, your body, um, that this is an important area to study and to learn what can be done and also take care of your head. Uh, this is one of those ones where the brain fog that has been reported it is important that you have the, the emotional support to get through this. So long haulers are a big deal. They're very important, and they are going to continue to grow in numbers substantially. So please don't get infected with this virus, young adults. Please don't. This is unfortunately one of your options, and you don't want this. You just don't want this. We've received some emails from our listeners about reinfection with SARS-CoV-2, which is a topic you've addressed in recent episodes, and SARS-CoV-2 mutations. Carol writes, when you spoke about reinfection on a recent update, you said the two viruses were, quote, different viruses. My assumption is the difference consists of mutations in the virus. Can you clarify this? And then Jim asks, with the U.S. on fire in recent, with recent cases, isn't it possible we'll see yet another mutation or two here in the U.S.? And does that keep you awake at night? Well, thank you, Carol and Jim, for two really good questions, and Carol in particular for uh, uh, asking me to clarify something I said, which obviously I didn't uh, do a very good job explaining it. First of all, as a coronavirus, uh, think of it as a ever-evolving virus, but not one that really changes. And what I mean by that is you, we had pictures of you, Carol, when you were five, when you were 10, when you were 15, when you were 25, when you were 30 not sure how old you are, but if you're 30 now, you'd see a very different Carol in all those pictures, but it wouldn't be a different Carol. It'd be the same Carol. And that's what's happening with this virus. It's changing enough so it's aging, but there's not some mechanism that's changing the basic way that it either is transmitted or its ability to cause severe disease. And in fact, we just had a major paper come out this past week from a really highly, highly skilled group in Singapore, which confirms that what they've seen in the differences in the in the these viruses do not at all cause a difference in how they're transmitted or how in, uh, infectious they are and cause disease. And so from that standpoint, when I say that they're different viruses, what I mean is it is the same virus. It's you, Carol. It's when you were five versus when you were 10. And we can just say they're two different viruses. But in fact, it's not in a way that is they're causing some great mutation to change it. So, Jim, the same thing is true with you. Uh, the more virus transmission we see, uh, we'll see these kinds of changes that surely can be documented as different strains, but nothing that would suggest from a mutational standpoint that uh, this is somehow going to uh, change how it's transmitted or the severity of the disease it causes. 
Then we have a question from Rosita about flu vaccination, which is an important issue given that uh, we are uh, entering into flu season. She writes, as seniors taking the high dose vaccine, my husband and I usually get our flu shot mid-October, but heard this year that it might be advisable to get them sooner. So, Mike, should people of any age consider getting the flu vaccine earlier than they normally would this year? Well, first of all, let me just be really clear. Get your flu vaccine. That's what's important, okay? Uh, you know, we don't know what the flu season will look like, but you don't want to complicate uh, COVID-19 and flu and trying to understand which you might have at the time. Uh, and uh, again, just reducing morbidity and even mortality associated with flu is an important issue. Uh, in terms of when you get your flu shot, uh, this is going to be a bit of a, a complicated answer, only in the sense that uh, I have a straightforward answer if there's more a COVID year, and that is I always wait until November to get my flu shot uh, and follow what's happening with flu in the community. And if there's no flu, I even wait longer. Uh, just because we do have data that the protection with flu vaccine wanes over time. And so that if I'm looking at potential late flu season, February, March, being where we're really most exposed, uh, then at that point, I want the vaccine to work. So I will still work to get my flu shot uh, in November following what's going on with flu activity and also able to get into clinics. But it may be more difficult this year, given COVID, to get into your medical clinic. And so getting your flu shot, you know, after October 1st um, to mid-October, as you said, I, uh, I think that's the best you can do. Try to schedule it as far ahead as you can. Uh, and wh whatever venue works best. Uh, I think that's also a very important thing. So number one, get your flu shot. If you can wait a little bit longer uh, to get it uh, later October, early November, I think that's better. Uh, the important thing is just be able to get in and you might want to check now with your clinics to find out how you can access uh, the flu shot, depending on where you got it in the past. Uh, you may want to check with them too. Some people are still getting it uh, in the drugstores, you know, the pharmacies, sections at the grocery store, et cetera. Wherever you've gotten to the past, just check to make sure you can still get it again. Mike, a quick follow-up about the flu. Uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, countries like Australia, South Africa, flu levels were very low uh, this flu season. Uh, does Is that a hopeful sign at all for the oncoming flu season here in the U.S.? Well, as I have uh, said many times, uh, the more I understand about influenza, the less I understand about it. Um, you know, anyone who has never been able to predict a flu season uh, has always been uh, at some risk of doing that um, because it can change so quickly. Uh, what we've seen in the Southern Hemisphere's winter, our past summer, was in fact one of the lowest flu years on record. Now, one could argue that is somehow tied to COVID, all the protections we take to protect ourselves from COVID itself uh, also reduce flu virus transmission. The only thing that I have a little concern about interpreting quite like that is you take some of the countries like Australia and New Zealand, where because they had quite good control of COVID during that time of the summer, early winter there, um, they weren't taking a lot of the steps that we are now seeing them take as they have more recently getting into their spring. Um, and yet they still didn't have extensive flu activity. Um, we've also seen a substantial transmission of COVID-19 in some of the other countries of South America, of, of uh, in Africa. 
And again, it's clear with that much COVID virus transmission, they weren't doing things that would have prevented flu virus transmission. Now, what could be happening is some kind of interference between the two viruses. Uh, and we have seen some evidence of that possible viral interference in the past, uh, potentially between two flu viruses. So I, I think it's just not clear. I would tell people you've probably got a 50-50 chance of either having more flu or less flu this year. And you can take which 50 you want to put it on. Uh, and we don't know. Uh, so, uh, again, I just come back and say, don't take your chances. Get your flu shot. So, uh, finally, we have a question that several of us here at SIDRAP are getting from friends and relatives who listen to the podcast who all want to know, what inning are we in? Chris, I, that's a great question. I think right now we're in the middle innings. Um, and I can't be more precise than that, other than to say, depending on what happens with the COVID-19 related vaccine, uh, what we see with the potential for durable immunity or lack thereof, how fast vaccine, if approved, can be made and distributed uh, in countries uh, throughout the world, and how uh, much uh, uptake of the vaccine actually occurs. Uh, if, in fact, uh, think about this, if we have a vaccine that's only 50% effective, which could be a possibility, and only 50% of the population takes it, that's 50 times 50, which comes out at 25% of the population would be protected. Now, that means 75% would not be, and we would still have tremendous amount of transmission going on. So, uh, you know, for me, the inning is still a relative issue. Uh, in the ideal world, I could say we were getting close to the closing innings if we had a highly effective vaccine and everybody wanted to take it and we could get the world saturated with it quickly. Um, and that's not going to be the case. So we're still in these middle innings uh, and uh, we got to really hope, realizing hope's not a strategy, but we've got to really hope that the vaccines can do more for us than, uh, than we might otherwise expect. Mike, I know you're a big Bruce Springsteen fan, as am I, and I understand you have some lyrics from The Boss to close out our episode this week. I do. Uh, you know, I kind of was, uh, you might say, in my early adulthood, uh, raised on Bruce Springsteen. Some of the concerts that I most appreciate and uh, never forget are Bruce Springsteen's. Uh, that's the kind of man that can blow you over with his music and not because of its loud sound, but because of the softness of his words. Uh, he is truly uh, America's troubadour. And for all of you who are wondering, uh, Bruce and the East Street Band have an album coming out, a studio album on October 10th. But he released uh, the first song off that album just this past week. And it's out there. I'd urge you to go and find it on the internet. Uh, the the uh, entire piece is, is is very moving. And the title of uh, this particular song is called "Letter to You." And as you'll see in a moment, why it's relevant uh, to this podcast. Neath a crowd of mongrel trees, I pulled the bothersome thread, got down on my knees, grabbed my pen, bowed my head. Tried to summon all that my heart finds true and send it in my letter to you. Things I found out through hard times and good, I wrote them all out in ink and blood, dug deep in my soul and signed my name true and sent it in a letter to you. In my letter to you, I took all my fears and doubts. In my letter to you, all the hard things I found out. In my letter to you, all that I have found true. And I send it in my letter to you. I took all the sunshine and rain, 
all my happiness and all my pain, the dark evening stars and the morning sky of blue, and I sent it in my letter to you. I sent it in my letter to you. In my letter to you, I took all my fears and doubts. In my letter to you, all the hard things that I found out. In my letter to you, all that I found true. And I sent it in my letter to you. I sent it in my letter to you. This song, these lyrics, uh, probably describe as well as anything I could use to describe why I do this podcast. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm blessed to work with this team at SIDRAP that clearly are critical to this. Uh, but in the end, I take responsibility for all the mistakes that come out and uh, uh, sometimes the crooked words uh, and uh, not always clear in meaning of some of the things that I say. But it comes from my heart and it's my letter to you. And I will continue to do that for the duration of this damn pandemic <laughs> because it's the only thing I know how to do. And so I just uh, say to you each week, just know that I will do my best to give my letter to you. And it's in that regard, I just want to follow up to the many, many emails I received this week about the episode last week on mental health. I know that we're all suffering in one way or another, the challenge of this time in our hearts and in our heads. And, you know, I I have to say that... uh, You know, for every ounce I put into these podcasts, I get back tons and tons and tons of support, very thoughtful comments, and uh, a connection that I can't begin to describe. As I said a long time ago um, in one of the podcasts, which seemed like years ago, you know, I've come to know you, and I think you've come to know me. And so I just say thank you for participating in these hours a week. I know that uh, uh, it takes a lot to listen to these. I also just want to urge you, in in light of what I commented on today about the loneliness and that University of Michigan survey, please reach out to people right now more than ever. More than ever, we need to reach out to people who need us, people who can't ask or they're afraid to ask or they don't know who to ask. Now's our time to do that. And uh, so I hope with all the science that you might accumulate in this podcast, the most important thing you take away is not the science. It's what we need to do right now to get through this pandemic and how we can connect with each other and what we can do to make that connection work. So be kind. Please be kind. Even when it's hard to be kind, be kind. Be tolerant. This is our COVID year. We're going to get through this. We just have to get through it with as much grace and class as possible. Be safe. Be kind. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Osterholm Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Osterholm Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.